I'm going to go ahead and invite us to turn to our text for this morning, which is Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, that's on page 947, and then on to 948, if you're following along in the Pew Bibles. And we're continuing a sermon series that we uh, began a couple of weeks ago, uh, looking at the intersection of faith and politics. And uh, like I talked about in the first message in this series, um, I'm not going to be talking about, uh, you know, specific, uh, I'm not going to tell you how to vote, basically. Uh, We're not going to dive into uh, specific uh, legislative uh, items or judicial uh, decisions, those sorts of things. It's not my job. I'm not a political scientist or a lawyer. Instead, as a, as a pastor, my job is to help us think Christianly about how to engage in every area of our lives, including the political process, in a Christ-like and Christ-centered and Christ-oriented way. And so that's really what we're trying to do in this series. And so far, uh, we started this a couple weeks ago, and then I was on vacation last week, and so Steve Winkle admirably filled in, um, and I've made sure to part my hair uh, this morning in the way that indicates that I'm the pastor this morning, the preacher this morning. Some of you remember his joke from last week. That's good. Um, Really, for these first number of weeks, what we've been doing is building a bit of a theological and biblical foundation to this series. We're continuing that this week. Next week, we're going to start to get into a couple of different pieces of application. So that's when we'll start to nail things down a little bit more. We're going to continue here, Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. This is what the Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesian believers back then as well as to us as Christian believers today. He says, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles, that's non-Israelite, non-Jewish people, formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile them to each other through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father through one spirit." Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, I'm sure we've all had that awkward situation at one point or another where we think that someone is talking to us and so we start to respond to them only to realize that they were in fact talking to someone else. 
Most of the time that's an individual mistake. It's something that happens between just a few people. But every once in a while, a whole group of people, a whole nation even, can make that mistake. And unfortunately, that's the mistake God's Old Testament people, the Israelites, made when it came to their understanding of God's promises in the Old Testament. Uh, We don't know exactly why, but out of all the people on earth, we read in the Old Testament that God chose a man named Abram and his wife Sarai as the people that he was going to use to kickstart the process of him saving and redeeming the world. Uh, Remember, the world wasn't always sinful the way that we experience it now. Instead, when he created it, God made the world good, and he created us as human beings good too. And then what God did is he gave that good world that he had made to us in order to steward it, to care for it, to govern it actually the way that he would if he was the one running things. And again, we don't know why God chose to do that rather than do everything himself, why he chose to partner with us as human beings. We just know that he did. And that was our role, that was our job, to steward and administrate God's creation according to his will, in the same way that he himself would run things here. Uh, I'm getting a little bit of feedback. I don't know if there's anything we can do about that, just a tiny bit. Um, Obviously, though, the problem is that we didn't do a very good job of living into that calling as human beings, right? Uh, We rebelled against God, we brought sin into the world, and as a result, we ended up plunging God's creation into this warped, twisted, sinful version that we have now. Rather than leave the world warped, twisted, and sinful, though, God decided to fix it. He decided to redeem it. He decided to restore his creation. And so God began working on a way to do that, to save his world. And it all started with a promise that he made to those two people, to Abram and Sarai. And that promise, God told Abram and Sarai that he would give them offspring so numerous that eventually their descendants would actually grow into their own nation. Um, In fact, uh, God tells them that their descendants will eventually become as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And then not only that, but God makes an additional promise to Abram and Sarai that that nation of their descendants would eventually become his chosen people. That he would enter into a special relationship with them, that they would be his people and he would be their God. And then God promised Abram and Sarai something even beyond that because he said that he would give their descendants their own land where he himself, God himself, would live with them in the same space as them, dwell among them in their very midst. And eventually all of that came true. Um, It didn't look exactly the way that I think Abram and Sarai maybe expected it to or wanted it to, but God kept his promise. He ended up giving them that nation of descendants. He gave them their own land too. And just like he promised, he himself moved into that land with Abram and Sarai's descendants, the Israelites, and lived there with them. In fact, that's pretty much the entire Old Testament right there. It's the story of Abram and Sarai's offspring, the story of how they came to that land that God promised them, and then the story of how God lived there among them and with them. Have you ever wondered, though, what was the point of all that? 
I mean, it's kind of an interesting, unique, different story, right? But why did God do all that? Why did he pick a chosen nation in the first place? And then why did he zero in on Abram and Sarai and their descendants as those chosen people? Why did he single them out, make them his special nation, choose to live among them? What was the purpose of all of that in the Old Testament? Well, when you read scripture, I think the purpose actually becomes fairly clear. In fact, it's right in the very first promise that God made to Abram in Genesis 12, verses two through three. In those verses, God comes to Abram and he says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And then here's really the key. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That last line sort of unlocks understanding this whole promise of why God is choosing Abram and Sarai and their descendants after them. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's why God called Abram and Sarai to him. That's why he gave them that nation of descendants, the Israelites, and chose them. That's why he singled them out and zeroed in on them. He blessed Abram and Sarai's descendants. He blessed Israel so that through them, he could bless the rest of the world too. How might that work? Well, when we read scripture, what we really see is Israel is meant to be an example and a witness to the nations. One theologian I like quite a bit, Michael Goheen, actually describes Israel as a display people. He says the same way that if you win an award or a trophy or something, you put it in a display case so that others can look at it and see your accomplishments. He says Israel was meant to be the same sort of thing. They were a display people who were meant to exist in the world so that when other people looked at them, they saw what it looked like to be in relationship with God. They were meant to be a wholly set-apart people that other nations, other groups of people who didn't know God could look at and see how Israel lived how they existed, how they ran their society, how they ran their culture, how they lived in relationship with God, and then those other nations and other groups of people could come to an awareness and learn about God and what it looks like to live in relationship with him too. That was Israel's calling, that was their task, that was their purpose. They were to give the rest of the world a picture of who God is and what it looks like to follow him. That was the reason God chose the Israelites as his people. They were supposed to be an example to the rest of the world of what it looks like when we as human beings have the kind of relationship with God that he designed and created us to have with him in the beginning. But there was another part of that calling too, actually. You see, it wasn't enough for the Israelites simply to say to others, hey, look at us, look how amazing we are, look at how awesome our relationship with God is. There was more to it than that. Because what the Israelites were actually supposed to do was take the next step as well. They were supposed to go beyond simply living faithfully as God's people themselves to invite others to become part of God's people as well. Again, they were supposed to be a light and a witness to the nations, but they were to do that in such a way that the nations would experience an invitation to step into that light and enter a relationship with God as well. For instance, listen to how the prophet Isaiah puts all of that in Isaiah 60, verses one through three. He writes, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. 
Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. That was Israel's calling. That was God's purpose in choosing them. That's what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to be a light to the nations so that through them, the nations would also come to know and serve the Lord. Unfortunately, though, that's also where things kind of went off the rails. You see, we get a few examples of that when we read scripture, a few examples of, of Gentiles or non-Israelites joining Israel. Uh, for instance, there's Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute. Uh, there's Ruth, who was a Moabite woman. Interestingly enough, both of those women actually become part of Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter one. Um, there's a whole group of people in the book of Joshua called the Gibeonites who join Israel. Uh, Uriah, the guy King David killed in order to get his wife Bathsheba, he was a Hittite, which was a Canaanite clan. Uh, and then Job, who gets a whole book in the Old Testament, was also an outsider, a non-Israelite from a far off place called the land of Uz. So we get glimpses of this. We get glimpses of Israel living into their calling, living into their status as God's people the way they were supposed to. But more often than not, that wasn't the case. Because while we get those glimpses here and there, what we actually see most of the time is Israel keeping their status as God's chosen people to themselves. In a word, the Israelites liked being God's chosen people, and they liked that they were God's chosen people rather than anyone else. They liked their status as God's chosen nation. And to be fair, I mean, I've long said this, I mean, who wouldn't, right? I've got to think if God chose any other ethnic or national group, uh, they would have done the same thing, right? I mean, we already sort of have that deal of like, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much, right? You know, like We all do this, right? We all think we're the best nation on earth, and that's what the Israelites did themselves. They liked their status as God's chosen people, and they kept that status to themselves. And so it wasn't long before the Israelites developed sort of an us versus them mentality. In fact, I think it's more accurate to say they developed an us versus everyone mentality. Because over time, their identity as God's, people, as, as God's people morphed from a calling to live as a light and a witness to others to instead an exclusive, we're better than you attitude that kept everyone else out. And again, just like making that mistake of thinking someone is talking to you when they're really talking to someone else, the Israelites thought of God's promises in the Old Testament as only being for them. In reality, though, God had a different audience in mind. It wasn't just the ethnically Jewish Israelites God was talking to at those promises. He was talking to them. It's just that he was talking to everyone else too. God was going to bless Israel and make them his special chosen people, but always with an eye towards using them to bless the rest of the world. And that's really what our passage this morning is about. It's about how God eventually made that happen. It's about how God eventually flung open the doors of his blessing, not just for Israel, but for the nations. It's about how Gentile, non-Jewish people went from being ethnic, national, uh, and religious outsiders to, as Paul puts it here in this text, fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. And how did that happen? It happened through Jesus Christ. You see, before Jesus came on the, on the scene, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, they had no real access 
to God. That, that lack of access was apparent in a number of different ways in, uh, in Jewish and Israelite society and culture and religion, but one of the most obvious examples was their exclusion from the temple in Jerusalem. Put simply, the temple was the place where the Jewish people believed that God dwelled among them in their land, just like he had promised Abram so long ago. But here's the thing about that. If you have God dwelling there in your midst, you've got to be pretty careful about that, right? After all, God is holy. And as a holy God, you don't want anything sinful or impure or unclean to enter into his presence because scripture gives us example after example after example of that not going well, right? And so everything about Israelite society and religion, including the temple, was designed to make sure that that never happened that nothing impure or sinful or unclean ever came into God's presence. The temple, even in its very architecture, was set up in a way to make sure that nothing and no one who shouldn't be in God's presence ever entered into it, which at the time, according to Jewish belief, included non-Jewish or Gentile people. Here's how it worked, and I've got a little diagram of, this is Herod's temple, so this is the temple that existed at the time of Jesus, and then also when Paul's writing this to the Ephesians. The temple really just had two rooms, okay? There was the innermost room, uh, which is sort of in the back of the temple, and that's called the Holy of Holies. And it's kind of right there in the name. That's the holiest part of the temple. That's the holiest part of the temple because that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, which is what the Jewish people believe served as God's throne. He dwelled among the Ark of the Covenant, enthroned as king over his people. That was the spot from which God ruled his people, Israel. You can think of it sort of like the hot spot of God's presence right there in the Holy of Holies. Then there's this other room in front of the Holy of Holies. That's called the Holy Place. Again, it's right there in the name. It's still holy, but it's not the holiest of holies, right? It's not the hot spot of God's presence, but it's still pretty important. The holy of holies, that hot spot of God's presence, only God was allowed to be there. Once in the year, the chief priest on the Day of Atonement was allowed to enter there to do some ministry directly before God's face. That was it. But in the holy place, all the priests could be right in there. They were doing different things like offering incense, different offerings to God, that sort of stuff. But only the priests no one else. Then outside the temple, what you have is a series of different courtyards with sort of descending levels of holiness the further out that you go. So you've got the priest's courtyard here, which is kind of self-explanatory. Only the priests and their assistants, the Levites, were able to be there. Then just beyond that, you have what's called the Court of Israel, or it's labeled the Israelites' courtyard right here. That was only for Israelite men. And then beyond that, you had the court of women, the women's courtyard, which was only for Israelite women. I'm sorry, ladies, but in that time and culture, you were considered slightly less holy than men, so you couldn't get quite as close, okay? That's how it's designed. The holiest spot to the less holy spot, the further out you go. At this point, I'm gonna let author and pastor John Stott describe the rest. He writes, these three courts, those three courts just outside the temple for the priests, the lay men, and the lay women of Israel, respectively, were all on the same elevation, the same level as the temple itself. From this level, you descended five steps to a walled platform. And then on the other side of that wall, another 14 steps to another wall, 
beyond which was the court of the Gentiles. From any part of it, the Gentiles could look up and view the temple, but were not allowed to approach it. They were cut off from it by the surrounding wall, which was a five-foot-high stone barricade on which were displayed at intervals warning notices in Greek and Latin. They read, in effect, not trespassers will be prosecuted, but trespassers will be executed. Can we just bring up that picture of the temple again? Is that possible? This is where the Gentiles could be. Anywhere on the other side of that wall. A couple levels and steps down from everyone else. In other words, if you were a Gentile, if you were a non-Israelite person, a non-Jewish person, you couldn't get anywhere close to God. The priests, the Levites, the Israelite men, the Israelite women, they all had access to God to one degree or another, but not Gentiles. If you were a Gentile, you couldn't be part of God's holy nation. That was the message. You didn't belong to God. You weren't one of his people, and by implication, he wasn't really your God either. Now, with that in mind, listen to what Paul writes in verse 13 here. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away, he's speaking to Gentile Christians here, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What Paul is saying is all of those Gentiles who used to have to stand far away from God at the temple in the court of Gentiles, down all those other steps, had to stand 19 steps below everyone else, all of you who would have been killed if you had come any closer than that, all of them now have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ, and they are now his people, his holy nation, his holy nation citizens of Israel, as Paul puts it, along with the Jewish people too. And then Paul doubles down on that. In verses 14 through 19, he writes, For he, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. That's a reference to that wall that told the Gentiles to stay out or they'd be killed. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, out of Jews and Gentiles, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, to Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, to Jewish people. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you Gentiles are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. I'll be honest, in the, in the time and culture that Paul is writing this, that is incredibly radical stuff, okay? Paul would have gotten a lot of emails from his congregants for writing that, okay? Because what Paul is saying there is that before Christ, God's people were the Israelites, and that was it. That was it. They were ethnically, socially, politically, and religiously Jewish. All of God's people had the same heritage, the same identity, the same background, and they were the only group of people on earth who could call themselves God's chosen people. It was just ethnically, religiously Jewish, Israelite people, that's it. But now what Paul is saying is that's no longer the case. Because God has flung the doors open to anyone who hears the gospel and puts their faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter who they are anymore. Their ethnicity doesn't matter, their nationality doesn't matter, their religious status doesn't matter, their gender doesn't matter, because if they put their faith in Christ through him, they have the same access to God 
and they become citizens of his people Israel. They join his very household as members of his family, which we call the church. And that's the reason why I bring all this up this morning. That's why we're talking about all of this. That's why we're discussing this in the context of a series on faith and politics, because at least here in the United States, in the North American church, there's a tendency to make the same mistake that the Israelites did. There's a tendency to read scripture and the promises that God makes there, and rather than seeing them as being about God's true chosen people, his church, we instead see them as being about our nation, our country, the United States. But simply, there are a number of passages in the Bible that over the years people uh, have mistakenly interpreted to be about the United States. I'll give you an example. In 1630, a man named John Winthrop set sail with a group of colonists from England. Uh, They were headed here to the American continent to found a colony that eventually became known as the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And at one point, either before they left or sometime during the voyage, the history is a little fuzzy on when exactly this happened, Winthrop gave a sermon where he told his fellow colonists that their purpose in starting their new colony was to be a city on a hill and that the eyes of all people would be upon them as they worked to establish their new society. Now that phrase, city on a hill, is from scripture. Uh, It's actually a quote from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount because early in the sermon, Jesus is talking to his disciples and at one point he says this. He says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In those verses, Jesus is actually telling his disciples the same thing that God told the Israelites uh, in the Old Testament. He's telling them that as his disciples, and this is true for us as his disciples still today, uh, as his disciples, we are called to shine our light for others who don't yet know God so that they might come to believe in him too. That's the context of those verses. Jesus is teaching his disciples to be witnesses for God in the world. He's teaching them that it means what it means to be the people of God. He's telling them that it is through them that others are going to come to know God. And yet in his sermon, Winthrop uses those verses differently. When he says that he and his fellow colonists are called to be a city on a hill, he isn't saying that they're going to first and foremost do that by being disciples of Jesus. That might be part of what he's talking about. But the main part of what he was talking about in the context of the sermon he gave is that they will be a city on a hill by founding their colony. That's how Winthrop believed he and his fellow colonists would be a light and a witness. They would be a light and a witness not first and foremost for God, but instead for democracy or for how to establish a good society or for how to have the best political system. And in the years since Winthrop gave that sermon in 1630, a whole host of politicians on both sides of the aisle, I might add, have picked up those words and continued to use them to describe the country that eventually grew out of that colony, the United States of America. Presidents John F. Kennedy, uh, Ronald Reagan, and Barack Obama are all examples, and there's more too. At one point or another, all of them have used that phrase, city on a hill, in speeches, not to refer to Christ's disciples as the light of the world, 
but rather the United States. And there are other examples of this kind of borrowing of scripture to talk about the United States too. I think you get my point though. I won't beat you over the head with it. We have a tendency as North American Christians to take the promises of God, which are clearly about his church as his chosen people, and make them instead about our country, our nation, the United States. We hear that sort of rhetoric a lot, right? God bless America, God bless our country, God bless our nation and its efforts in the world. If what we mean by that is God bless America and every other nation on earth, or God bless our country the same way that he blesses every other country, or God bless America through his true chosen nation, the church, then I have no problem with that because that's right in line with God's promises to Abram, right? God tells Abram, I will bless you so that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's just that I don't think that's what many people mean when they say those sorts of things. What they seem to mean is God bless America more than any other nation. God bless America to the exclusion of any other nation. God bless America because America is God's chosen nation and America is how God is going to bring his blessing to the rest of the world. And that's the same mistake that the Israelites made in the Old Testament. Because God isn't talking to us as Americans when he makes those promises in scripture. He's talking to us as Christians. And that's something that we have to get right if we're gonna understand how our faith and politics relate to each other. As Americans, we can't go around thinking that the United States of America, or any other earthly nation for that matter, is the nation God is going to drive forward his redemptive and restorative purposes in this world, because it's not. We, the United States, are not God's chosen people. We, the church, are. That's God's chosen nation. That's who God has reconciled to himself. That's who God has blessed, not like we talked about, so that we can just hold on to that blessing for ourselves, but so that through us, God can bless the rest of the world too. That blessing certainly includes our earthly country, the United States, but it includes every other earthly nation too. As God's chosen people, his chosen nation, his church, we are called to be a light and a witness so that all of those anywhere in the world who are far off from God can come near to him through the blood of Jesus Christ. In short, we are called to preach the gospel in such a way that people from every nation, culture, and background can hear it as good news and come to a reconciled relationship with God just as we ourselves have. Which, of course, brings us to the gospel this morning. You see, as sinful people, all of us were once far from God. We are all sinful, broken, and separated from God by our sin. And unless we're ethnically Jewish, I think we should all be glad that God flung the doors of his grace open through Jesus Christ, because that's how we ourselves have come in. And that's what Paul says here. He says that we who were once far away have been brought near to God. By the blood of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, we have been made right with him. Through Christ, we have been reconciled to God, given access to him, and made members of his very family. And here's the most amazing part. That promise, unlike in the Old Testament, isn't just for people from one country or one culture or one part of the world. Instead, that promise is for everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. We, 
God's church are his chosen nation, his special people, those he's called to be a light and a witness in the world. It's us. And we get to live as his people by his grace regardless of what earthly nation we're a part of. And we also get to invite others regardless of what nation they're a part of to experience and live in light of that grace as well. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we were once far from you. And that is our fault. We rebelled against you. We sinned. We put distance between ourselves and you. And we could not close that gap. But because of your grace and your promises and your son, Jesus Christ, we have been reconciled to you. Help us to live as people of that reconciliation in such a way that others will see us and our relationship with you and come to faith in you as well. We pray this in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.